0: Well good morning. It is good to see you guys. It's great to see you guys. I was just thinking as we were singing just how much of a blessing it is to to be a part of this church and to be a part of of this family. And my wife and I talk about it all the time how we don't deserve to be here. We don't know how the Lord orchestrated our lives to bring us to be here, but we are so thankful and grateful, and we love you guys, and, and even, even you guys today. I mean, the, you know, the Lord has ordained for each of us to be here this morning. That was part of his sovereign will, out of his goodness and grace and kindness, and we're here to worship together, to sing together, pray together, to hear his word given to us. Uh, I mean, what an amazing blessing it is that we are alive physically, and if you are his, alive spiritually, and we're here today to hear his truth. So this is a wonderful day. Uh, Stuart Scott always says, every day I wake up and I'm not in hell, that's a good day. you know." And, and today is a good day, right? Uh, and, and, and if you think of it that way, 2020 was a great year. It's always a good day <laughs> when we're not uh, existing under the wrath of God and we're still partaking of his mercies and his grace and his love. And if you are born again and a child of God, then every day from this point forward, is a wonderful day, and it's only going to get better. If you guys want to open up to Colossians 3 today, Colossians 3, we're going to look at verses 12 through 14, and I was just thinking about what to teach on this morning. Um, It's been weird because I have not been uh, teaching like normal in the youth and college groups, and so it's been a little different. Uh, Usually, uh, there's something that I've been studying in the Word, it's been on my heart, and it's like, we're just going to teach this, but today I was just thinking, you know, as I was preparing to teach, I was thinking, what do I need to hear? You know, I mean, this is New Year's. This is when we all make all of our New Year's resolutions and and one of the things that I was just looking in my life, reflecting back last year and thinking about the future, the, the, the one thing that just was on my mind and my heart is I want holiness. I want Christ-likeness. I want to be like Him and I'll do anything to get there. And I pray that He will do anything in me and through me and for me to get me to the place where I'm more and more like Jesus Christ. So I thought, we'll talk about that. In light of New Year's resolutions, you know, and it's, it's not bad to have them to eat less and to exercise more and to save more money and to read your Bible all the way through Deuteronomy again this year. <laughs> I mean, we're all looking to be a better me and to be a, a new self. I mean, that's just something that's innate in all of us anyway. But uh, if you are a child of God, then you know that there is more to life than just this life. We don't live for the things that we can see around us alone. And if you've been given new life in Jesus Christ, then your new year's resolution should be no different than last year's resolution and next year's resolution if the Lord allows you to, to be on this earth that long. Uh, the world is always changing, but the word of God is not. And the people around us are always changing. But our focus and our... Allegiance should be steadfast and firm. And if we are children of God, we have one resolution Christ likeness. That's what we desire this year. Ephesians four twenty four says, You must put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. This is what we're doing. We are always, always putting on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, that which is holy, that which is righteous that which is based in his truth. So, our new selves resolution, what we're going to call it, is Christ likeness and that's what I want to talk about today. So, read with me Colossians 3. We're going to look at verses 12 through 17. Colossians 3:12 through 17. And he says this. So as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. And beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let's pray. Father, we know that your word is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. That for all of your children, your word always does its work in our lives. Every time we read, every time we open it, every time we hear it, to convict, to to discern good and evil, uh, to uh, push us forward more towards holiness and righteousness to reveal in us the things that must go, the things that we must mortify, the things that we must put away, and to remind us again of the same truths that we've heard over and over, but we need daily reminders so that we can walk in a manner worthy of you. Father, we know that we need your spirit to understand your truth. We know that your truth, for those who do not know you, is simply foolishness, but for those who are chosen by you, this is the power of God. So we pray this morning, Father, open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and do your work through your word in all of our lives to soften and to convict or to harden. Father, we know your will is perfect, and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. So Colossians 3. Starting in verse 12, well actually, honestly, starting, let's look back a little before this because again, you want to look at the context of of where this is coming from. We're diving right in the middle of a letter uh, Paul wrote to believers 2,000 years ago uh, with the the calling for them to to stand firm, uh, to stand firm in Christ, knowing that they are created in him, uh, to not be fooled or led astray by people that were speaking things that were not true in their midst, and to warn them of that, and to remind them uh, to persevere. So that in mind, look back at verse 1, and uh, to see, you know, where we've come from and where we're going, he says in chapter 3, verse 1, therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ... Honestly, it means since you have been raised up with Christ. So speaking to those who are born again, made alive, keep seeking the things above. So this is your constant goal and ambition, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. This is what we are now. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, that means when he comes again, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So right now, we are hidden in Christ. Right now, our minds are focused on things above. He is our driving force both within us, and we are running towards him. And when he is revealed, we will be revealed together with him because we are the children of God. We have a new identity in Christ. We have a whole new perspective on life. And we have to set our mind, our thoughts, our affections, our ambitions on things above and not things of this earth. He goes on in verse five to say, therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead. So this is something you are actively doing both in your mind and in your actions, considering yourself as dead to these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. If those are the things driving your life or those things that you are hiding as you're pretending to feign this holiness when you come to church, then you are nothing more than an idolater and you must put away these things, set aside evil in your life and fight your sin. First, because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. We know that. And in them, you also, all of us, once walked when we were living in them. So there was a time in the life of all believers where we were children of darkness, where we were uh, driven by, controlled by, we lived by uh, the, the way we thought, the lust of our mind, the lust of our flesh, our desires, our passions, that no longer, we're no longer allowed to do that. In fact, we submit our will to his will. We submit our desires to his desire, and we strive to live as slaves to Jesus Christ every word that comes out of his mouth. But he says, But now you also put them all aside. These are the things that we must take off. We must put aside anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you've laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge. So there's a, a continual renewal according to the knowledge of Christ, the truth of God's word, according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jews, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian and Scythian, slave and free men. But Christ is all and in all. And if you are a child of God, if you have been made a new creation, if you're alive today in Jesus Christ, then you understand that Christ is all. Christ is all for us. It does not matter what we gain or lose in this life. It does not matter what we are, how much money we make, where we go, what our achievements are. We want Christ. We want to be like Christ. We want to be with Christ. And our eyes are focused on Christ. And every time they get off Christ, by his wonderful grace, he pulls them back and refocuses us on him so that we will not stray, that we will persevere to the end. And the other wonderful truth from this is that Christ is in all. For all of you sitting out there today that know him, our, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I know and you know that he exists within you, that he lives within you, that he is in all of us, and he controls all of us. He is everything to us, and he is the one within us that is controlling us and keeping us on the path. We know that without him, we never would have come to him. We never would have, we would remain in him, and we would never make it to him. This is all the work of Christ. So if we are in Christ, the old self is dead. The new self is alive. These are promises that he makes. These are things that he does. This is the result of the transformation that happens when we are justified, when we are ransomed and redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. He is the one that makes us alive. He is the one that makes us a new creation. He is the one that gives us a new self. We've been made new by our Father through Jesus Christ. And at the same time, working in perfect harmony with that, we have the command from our Father to actively and daily put off the old and put on the new. This is not bringing about our justification. This is not adding to our salvation. This is not securing our salvation as if what Christ did on the cross was not secure enough for us. This is a demonstration and a confirmation that you have true, authentic salvation. This is always the result of someone who is born again, who is made new. There is always a pursuit, a pursuit of sanctification. Our new nature is given to us by the grace and choice of God, and we know that. And it will be completed and perfected and sanctified by his working. And at the same time, all those who are in Christ have a commanded charge by our Father and by our Master Jesus Christ to pursue sanctification, to pursue perfection, to pursue completion and holiness until the day that we die. This is the evidence and proof that He is within us and that He is our Master and that we are His. There is no salvation without sanctification. John MacArthur says a righteous identity must issue in righteous behavior. Such behavior is the outward manifestation of the inward transformation. And it is the only sure proof that such transformation has taken place. In fact, God declares that sanctification is always his indisputable will for all of his children. That's what Romans 8 is talking about. Romans 8, 28 and 29. We quote it all the time, right? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Those are called according to his purpose. And we usually say that when things are going really bad. You know, our house just burned down. We lost our job and our dog died. And we're like, well, God works all things together for the good of those who love You know, and we were trying to, it's almost like this magical verse that gives us hope in the midst of despair, but that's not at all what's going on here. I mean, it's not that it doesn't do that. It is a verse of hope, but the good is defined. It's not just good like, hey, it's going to work out. You might get a new house. You'll probably buy a new dog and hopefully you'll get a new job. The good he's talking about is Christ-like holiness. That's what he's talking about. He says, we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. So all things are working together for good for his children. This isn't a verse for everyone. This is for his children. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined. Here is your end. Here is what God is aiming at and what you will, where you will end. He has predestined us to become conformed to the image of his son. In other words, God causes all things to work together for your sanctification and holiness if you are a child of God, if you love him and are called by his name. So if this is the design purpose of almighty God, if this is the fixed will of our father, if this is his resolve, then it must be our determined and resolute ambition while we are in this flesh on this earth in this life because he's going to accomplish it and we wanna be working with him, not against him. When we are hiding sin in our life, when we are, when we are allowing ourselves uh, opportunities to sin and, and, and not putting uh, aside our flesh and putting on holiness, then we are working at enmity against God, not with him, which proves either one, we are not with him to begin with and or he's coming for us to discipline us so that we will be with him. That's what he does. He loves us. So this is what we do. And we must deny ourselves anything, forsake anyone, and abandon everything that hinders us from being perfectly conformed to the character and nature of Jesus Christ. This is our new selves resolution. And we must do this if we resolve to imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like we read prior to this, we have to eliminate anything that keeps us from holiness. Just like the verses said in verses 5 through 11. Uh, Richard Baxter said, You have to kill sin before it kills you. That's the first thing some of us need to hear this morning. You've got to be mortifying your flesh. You've be, got to be killing your sin. You've got to be fighting. If you're not fighting, then you are a total slave to your flesh. Christians fight their sin. I always tell uh, the college and youth that, my girls, I say, uh, uh, It's hypocrites that hide their sin. Hypocrites hide their sin. Christians fight their sin. Unbelievers deny their sin, they don't even think they have it. Hypocrites are trying to hide it because they want you to think they're holy. You know, they're, they're sinning every day, just like any person, but then they're pretending to be holy. Christians, man, we don't pretend. I mean, we're, we're like, we're sinning. We sin every day, but I hate it. I want it to be gone. I'm going to fight it till the day I die, all by the grace and power and mercy of my Lord Jesus Christ. We put away the old, we put on the new. So that's what we're going to talk about today. What is this putting on stuff and what must we do Uh, To be holy well the first thing I guess the first point that we just have to start with we can't start without this is in order to pursue holiness in order to, to to put on the new self you must belong to Jesus Christ first and foremost there is no putting on the new self if there is no new self and there is no fighting for holiness if there is no holiness. It's not like you can, as a sinful person, begin to make yourself holy by just doing some stuff, some religious deeds, throwing up some prayers and making decisions in your life. That's not how it works. You must be transformed, born again, renewed, made alive by the blood of Jesus Christ. You have to be a child of God, adopted by him, predestined by him, having your name written in his book. Then we can go to step two. But step one is we must belong to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. He says, so is those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved. And the chosen of God are those that God has picked out with his hand, those who he has selected, those who he has elected. These are God's adopted children. They were each ransomed by the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. They were each purchased with the price, the blood of his son. And they were redeemed and made alive and empowered and placed purposefully on this earth to do and accomplish his will. That is what it means to be a Christian. It doesn't matter that many people all over this world are walking around saying they're Christians. What matters is what does God say his children look like and, and, and what does God say is happening within his children? Revelations 13 17 says uh, that the children of God had their names written in the book of life before the foundation of the world. Romans eight thirty says that those who he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. There's only one kind of child of God, those who are predestined and destined for Glory. And that is the pathway for every child of God. You start with the choosing of God before the foundation of the world and you end with the glory of Christ for all eternity. And everything in between is part of that pathway. There is no other kind of Christian. Ephesians 1 says he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, has nothing to do with you, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. This is is the love and the mercy, the grace, the kindness of God. This is the will of our Father. And because we are chosen, we are holy and loved by God. That means we're set apart, we're sanctified, we're devoted to his service and his work, and we are cherished and adorned and treasured by him. It's a different love that he ha- than he has for his enemies. He loves his enemies, he shows mercy to his enemies, he gives grace to his enemies in this life, but his enemies are destined for his eternal wrath, But his children are not. They're destined for his eternal love and holiness and righteousness and truth forever. And there is a special love that he has for his children. He treasures, adores them, and nothing will separate them from his love. And if you are his chosen, if you are his children, then you are holy and you are loved because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And we cannot forget who we are because who we are determines how we live. Our identity is no longer determined by our own desires. Our identity is no longer determined by our pleasures. Our identity is no longer determined by our pursuits, by our positions, by our predetermined characteristics, the things that we think we're made of. Our identity is now determined and driven by Jesus Christ and his church. And he is the author of our faith and he is the perfecter of our faith. Philippians 1.6 says that every good work he begins, he perfects. And Ephesians 5.1 says that if we are children of God, beloved by him, then we must imitate our father. and we must walk in love just like Christ loved us and laid down his life for us. That is who we are. And that is how we live. And there is no alternative path or other way. If you identify with Christ, you must imitate his character. And if you have been made holy and you are loved by God, then you must pursue holiness and you must love one another because that is the command given to us by our master and our Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this. This is good. Listen, I need to hear this and you need to hear this. He has chosen us purposefully so that we would bear his image. That's why you have been chosen. And he promises us that we will be perfected. He promises us that our character will become more and more like his own. And he promises that he will display himself in us through the fruit of his spirit that dwells within us. And he has placed us in the body of Christ. You are here, part of this group, to facilitate our holiness, to facilitate our maturity and our completeness in our Christ likeness. That's why you're a part of this church. That's why you're a part of the body of Christ. And you have an active role in that. You don't just come to church to get fed and then to leave. That is a parasite. You are an active part of the body of Christ. You're not just sucking things out of the body of Christ. In fact, God's placed you in this church to be an active part of my sanctification and the sanctification of the other people in this church through your p- prayers, through your love, through your encouragement through your uh, mercy and grace that you give to one another. And we're going to talk more about that in a second. You are an active part of the body of Christ, and Christ has put you in this church for a purpose and a reason. Do not neglect your duty and responsibility. So how does he do this? Here's how he does it. First, he teaches us precisely how to love one another, right? According to his holy standard that we find in his word. So how do you love one another and obey Jesus Christ? Read his word. He tells you exactly. There's a lot of one another's in the Bible. It just defines what his love looks like. Then he strengthens us through the power of the spirit that dwells within each of us as we submit our will to his word. So instead of doing what you think is right and what you want to do, you submit yourself to what he says is right and what he wants you to do. And in doing that, you're able to live in a manner worthy of your calling. But listen to this. This is the part we forget sometimes. He allows sin within the body of Christ purposefully so that we would be given the opportunity to submit to his will and to love one another while suffering and being sinned against. We forget that sometimes, right? We get together with the church and we're like, well, how could they say that? They know Jesus Christ. They should never have said that. And and the first thing you're forgetting is, haven't you done that as well? Yes, yes if you're like, no, then you got a bigger problem going on here. <laughs> you got a pride problem. And, and just go read what the Bible says about pride, because God's coming to crush you, you know, so that don't go there. Listen, we're going to sin against one another. It's part of living in this life on this earth together. And as children of God, we need to expect that other children of God will sin against us. Because you will never have an opportunity to love one another the way that Christ loves you without the presence of sin happening in your life. How are you going to show someone mercy unless they sin against you? How are you going to forgive someone unless they sin against you? How are you going to love your enemies unless you have enemies? How are you going to show meekness and gentleness, kindness, reverence, honor, compassion? All of those things require sin in order for you to be able to practice holiness So don't come to church and expect no one to sin against you. Come to church and expect it to happen. Welcome the opportunity to show someone else love when they've been unkind to you. To show someone else gentleness when they deserve your vengeance. That's what he does. That's how he puts us in the place where he makes us more like Christ. Sanctification requires salvation. It requires submission, but it also requires suffering and sin. If you were to look at any of the fruits of the Spirit, Galatians 5, if you look at love in 1 Corinthians 13, if you look at any Christ-like characteristic that we're called to practice or imitate, you will find that it requires sin to be practiced. So if you want holiness, then it's going to come with uh, trials, suffering, sin. Both sin in your own life that you have to fight against and sin that comes from brothers and sisters in Christ that you have to love. In most cases, it requires personal offense if you've been personally offended by someone in this church, good. Now love them. Love them and be gracious to them and show mercy to them. Go after them with, with all generosity and love them. Personal offense, even if if you've been offended personally and it was undeserved, that's the best kind of suffering. Suffering that was unwarranted, that you didn't even do anything to gain it. Christians never have the right to be the victims. Do you understand that? No, we may be a victim of someone else's sin, but that's a glorious opportunity for you to be a Christian. In fact, every time we are victims of unrighteousness or evil, it presents us with an opportunity to trust our Father rather than figure out how we can uh, defend ourselves and submit to His will in obedience. In other words, suffering is a grace gift granted to us by God our Father just like salvation out of His love so that we would glorify Him. And, and if you got a problem with that, you got to go read his word. Philippians 1.29 says that pretty much word for word. Suffering is a grace gift granted to you by God because he loves you. The reason it's a grace gift is because it is purposed in your life to make you more like Jesus Christ. So, The first new selves resolution is this, we must belong to Jesus Christ. Listen, if you're sitting out there today and you do not know him, you are not submitting to him in obedience and love, you are not striving to love one another, you're not an active part of the church, but you're just sucking off of the church, then today is the day of repentance. Repent and believe in Jesus Christ and begin 2021 as a new creation that knows the God of the universe that is born again by the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the only sermon, the only sermon that you're here for. But if you are transformed, if you are new, if you are born again, then the next thing that must take place in our lives is we must become like Jesus Christ. We have been made like Christ and now we must become like Christ. Look at the second half of verse 12. He says, to his children, those who are chosen and beloved, those who are, are, are holy, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. To become like Jesus, you must dress like Jesus. The word here is an imperative command that we must put on, we must clothe ourselves, we must dress ourselves, we must be completely enveloped in, we must be completely covered by. In other words, now when people see your life, this is what they see. When they see your words and your actions, the way you work, the way you live in your family, the way that you treat your children and your wife, the way that you live, the way that you drive, the way that you live life, They need to see a life covered in Christ. Your thoughts, your words, your actions, your reactions, your choices governed by Christ and reflecting his nature and his love. The epistles use this verb over and over to talk about our daily conduct, our consistent behavior, patterns in our life, our manner of living. That's what he's talking about. Your life should reflect this. This is how we dress. This is what we look like. And it's usually in the imperative mood. It's usually a command. It's never sit around and let him clothe you in this. It's you clothe yourselves like this. Fully knowing that it is God who does all the sanctifying work in us, but this is our duty, our responsibility. These are commands by our Father. Children of God are reborn with a desire for holiness, love, and things from above. We are born with that. He instills it within us. If you have no desire for holiness, then you have to check your pulse. You may still be dead in your sin. If you have no pursuit of holiness in your life, again, you may just be a corpse. Children of God are reborn with a desire for holiness. They are reborn with a pursuit of holiness and they will not stop until they are holy. Fully knowing that you're gonna sin every day, fully knowing that you're gonna blow it, fully knowing you're gonna fight your sin, fully knowing that you're gonna be disappointed, you're gonna be wishing you would die sometime. I just wanna be together with him and stop this crazy battle. But it's there. If it's not there, you have to check your pulse. There will be a drive in your life for sanctification. John MacArthur again says our positional reality, what we are in reality is worked out through practical living. So this idea of putting off and putting on, this is, this is sprinkled throughout the New Testament. This is an idea you see over and over. Romans 13, he says we must lay aside deeds of darkness and we must put on the armor of light. So you're laying aside darkness, you're putting on light and then he says what that, looks, what that means, let us behave properly. So the putting on of light has to do with your daily conduct and behavior. Again, not hypocrisy, but you're putting away evil and you're putting on holiness. And he says, we put on the Lord Jesus Christ and we make no provision for the flesh. In other words, as you put away darkness, don't leave any sin in your pocket. Don't leave any open doors and open windows where you can sneak back into that sin. You're going to have plenty of sin every day to repent of. Don't worry about that. You don't need to keep a little bit around so you can repent of it tomorrow, okay? Get rid of all provisions of sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 says it this way. He says, if you've heard Christ, if you know Christ, if you've learned Christ in truth, then you must lay aside the old self. This is a continual mortification of what you once were, your passions and desires and things that used to drive you. you. Uh, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. That's how we all once were. We all lived in corruption. We all lived according to our lust. We all lived in deception. That's what you were as an unbeliever. That no longer can define how you live your life, how you speak, how you think. There is no deceit, practice deceit for the believer, or practice lust. He says, so that you will be renewed in the spirit of your mind and you put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God, created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. In Ephesians 6, he says, we put on the full armor of God. So these are all commands to cease, to end, to put to death sinfulness in our lives and to cultivate and develop and practice righteousness. That's what we do. And all of us are commanded to live this way. No one has any excuse. And think about this. All of the virtues that we're gonna look at in this list to put on all of these things. First, describe the character of God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ. Every one of them are a description of who he is, perfectly. Secondly, every one of these virtues describe the character of his spirit that he puts within his children. In other words, these things are going to be within us and they're going to be producing or his spirit will be producing these fruits. Thirdly, all these virtues describe the character and nature of his true children. In other words, they are proof of and evidence of your adoption as children of God or your salvation. Fourth, they come with a reminder that we are indebted to him through Christ in love. Every one of these virtues we're going to look at are things that he has given to you perfectly. And now he requires of you daily. Every one of these virtues comes with a warning to his children. Don't forget that. Every fruit of the spirit that you are striving to pursue on the flip side comes with a warning that if you are purposefully neglecting and willfully rejecting, he's coming for you in discipline because he loves you and he will not lose you and he will do anything in your life to make sure that sin does not deceive you and take you from him. And finally, all these virtues require salvation to be practiced and they require the presence of sin to be practiced. So don't be shocked when people sin against you. See, it is a wonderful, welcoming opportunity for you to be more like Jesus Christ. And The other thing with these verses, he is speaking specifically to us. Not everybody in this room, but all of those in this room that are born from above, that have his spirit dwelling within them, that are children of God, that have the same blood of Jesus Christ uh, that unites us and the spirit of God that unites us. This is for the church. In other words, if you belong to Christ, the way that you will become like Christ Is for your brethren within the church to sin against you frequently and for you to resolve to love them in return indefinitely. That has to be your resolve. I don't care what they do. I don't care what they say. I don't care if they hurt me and I don't care what they say about me in the dark. I'm gonna love them until I die and I have to because that's how he loved me. That's a fight. That's not natural and it's something we need each other to be able to do and to pursue. So, To become like Christ, the first thing we see here is we must practice compassion towards one another. He says, put on a heart of compassion. It comes from two words, which mean an inward yearning, a longing desire to show mercy. You should have something within you that wells up, that wants to show mercy and compassion and love and pity and sympathy and comfort and care. And that's something that's going to have to be stirred up within you through his word, through prayer and through the church. How are you going to know how to show compassion on people if you don't know the people in the body of Christ? And how will you know how to show compassion if you don't know the compassion given to you by the Lord Jesus Christ? You must practice compassion towards others. And it's his mercy and compassion and comfort that compels us to give that to other people. In, in 2 Corinthians 1, through 3-5, he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort." It's the same, same word. The Father of mercy is the God of comfort who comforts us in our affliction. Why? Why does God comfort you when you are being afflicted? So that you, so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves have been comforted by God. God is the God of all mercy and the God of all comfort and he comforts you purposefully so that you yourself will come along others in the church as they're being afflicted with comfort, with mercy, with sympathy, with pity, with compassion, with love. It's his mercy and pity and love and compassion that led to our salvation. Don't forget that. It was the mercy of God and his pitiful love toward you, a wicked sinner that was at war with him that led to your salvation. So should we not show compassion and mercy to others? Ephesians 2, God was rich in mercy because of his great love, with which he loved us even while we were dead, made us alive. By his grace, we have been saved through faith. This is grace that comes from his kindness towards us. It is the gift of God. And then in Matthew 18, again, there's a warning. There's always a warning somewhere in scripture. If you purposefully choose to withhold comfort or mercy or compassion towards a fellow brother in Christ, there's a big warning in Matthew 18. Your father is angry with you and coming for you do not withhold mercy to a fellow believer after you've been shown unending mercy by your father through the blood of his son secondly to become like christ we must practice kindness towards others kindness now again if you look at this you're like well i'm kind that's not how what we're talking about we're talking about a supernatural kindness that you must practice towards one another it's honesty uprightness goodness it's being more concerned about the good of other people than your own good now are you kind Not normally, right? Normally, we're like, "Well, I'll take care of me, and then if there's any left over, we'll look out for other people." But that's not the kindness of Christ, and that's not the kindness required of you as a child of God. Jesus Christ is the kindness of God manifest. I mean, that's what Titus three says: when the kindness of God, our Savior, and His love for mankind appeared, bling—it was Jesus, kindness and love. Made into man, Jesus Christ. You want to see the kindness of God? It is Christ. He saved us not on the basis of our deeds that we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. That's what kindness looks like. You don't show kindness and goodness to other people that show you kindness and goodness. I mean, you do that, but that's not kindness and goodness. Everybody does that. The most evil people on the planet can do that. Kindness is when you show kindness and goodness and love to someone who has not shown you any kindness And if that may be working against you, that's the kindness that our Lord showed us and that's the kindness that we must show to others. Again, it's the kindness of God that led to our repentance. We just read that in Romans 2. It's the riches of his kindness. It was his tolerance. It was his patience with you before you were his that led to your salvation. And then Paul says, uh, after that he says, um, not knowing the kindness of God led you to repentance. So we must show that same kindness, patience, and tolerance to others. Is In Galatians 5, it's the kindness of God that is both the command of God and the evidence that we belong with him. He says, walk by the spirit. Uh, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, and kindness. So if you are of God, kindness will rest within you and be coming out of you because God is kind and he is within you. And again, there is a warning. In Romans 11, there's a warning that you, if you do not uh, show kindness... then then it's a terrifying thing. He says, you stand by your faith, speaking to Gentiles. So he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. The Jews have been uh, cut off and the church has now begun and Gentiles are being brought into the kingdom of God, but there's still a future for Israel and all of that stuff. This is a, a big theological chapter, but he says this. He says, you stand by your faith, right, Gentiles? You're born again. You're part of his kingdom because of your faith. Don't be conceited, he says, but fear. Don't be conceited. Don't look around and be like, well, I'm chosen. I must be better than at least all the unchosen. He says, you don't be conceited about your salvation. You fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. either. Behold, the kindness and severity of God to those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. You have no option. You must continue in the kindness of God and show kindness to one another when you are being sinned against because the alternative is eternal destruction. If you withhold kindness and you decide, I am not going to show kindness, I have a reason to stand uh, against someone, there's two options. Again, either God's coming for you because you are his child and he will discipline you and bring you back on the kindness track or you're not his and you are heading on a path of destruction. That's terrifying. Next, to become like Christ, we must practice humility towards others. Humility. This is the most cherished Christian virtue because it reflects perfectly the character of Jesus Christ. Humility. Philippians 2, 3 through 4, Jesus Christ is the consummate example of humility. He says, do nothing from selfishness, nothing from empty conceit or pride, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. Humility is looking out for others' interests over and above yours. Humility is is regarding others as more important than you. That's humility. Humility is not thinking you're the worst and thinking low of yourself, thinking, you know, "I'm, I'm the worst. That's just pride. That's the other side of pride. Pride's either thinking you're the best or thinking you're the worst. Both of them, you're thinking about you. Stop thinking about you. Start thinking about him and others. That's humility. Humility is the command of God. It's the evidence that God's within us. In Ephesians 4, he says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility. If you want to walk worthy of Christ, if you want evidence that Christ is within you and that you belong to him, then you will be living with all humility and striving for all humility. And again, the warning, there's a warning in 1 Peter 5. He says, be subject to your elders and, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another for God is opposed to the proud. The last thing you wanna do is be living on, in the mercies and grace of God in opposition to him, thinking that you're his, If you are proud, he is opposed to you. He crushes the proud and he exalts the humble. The humble are those who realize they are nothing. They're looking out for others' interests and they're looking out for his interests and they're striving to expend themselves for Christ. Next, to become like Christ, we must practice gentleness towards others in the church. This is a mildness, a meekness, a kindness, a humility. Again, all these words work together. But there is something here. That is defined by this. It's, it's a willingness to suffer and not retaliate. It's a willingness to be wrong and not revile. It's a willingness to be kind and to give kindness when vengeance is expected. That's what gentleness is. Gentleness is not just a person that, you know, seems passive, doesn't get angry when people see them. Gentleness is something we fight for by restraining ourselves, by having self-control. And by loving others. Again, it's the character of Christ. Matthew 11, I am gentle and humble in heart. It's the example of Christ, 1 Peter 2. He suffered. He left us an example to follow, even though he was sinless and there was no deceit ever found in him. He was reviled by us and he did not revile in return. He suffered, but he uttered no threats. He kept entrusting himself to his Father instead and he died for our sins. And it's a command given to us, and it's evidence that God is within us. In Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit, again, is gentleness. So, we must be gentle. And there are plenty of warnings in the Bible about the ruthless. They will come to an end, and God will destroy them. We are gentle towards one another. We must become patient, or to become like Christ, we must practice patience towards others in the church. Patience just means long-suffering, forbearance. It's the opposite of anger, resentment, bitterness, and cynicism. Is founded on a trust of your father and his plans and his will, and it leaves vindication and vengeance in his hands. God will destroy the sinner. God will vindicate his children. God will show vengeance on all of his enemies. Leave that up to him. And you be patient. Don't be embittered. Don't be cynical. Again, Romans 2 we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice sin, right? You know that. The judgment of God will fall on those who practice sin. So leave it with him and you stop judging. He says, do you suppose, oh man, when you pass judgment on those who practice these things and you yourself do the same things that you're gonna escape the judgment of God? The fact that you stand in judgment over your brother as if you are the holy judge that never fails at these things is itself an an affront to God. God. So stop standing in judgment over your brother and be patient with them as they sin. They're gonna sin, you're gonna sin. Be patient, leave vengeance in his hands. One day he will weed out all the hypocrites. Just wait, right? Let him do that. Let him do that. He says, do you think lightly of his riches and his kindness, his tolerance, his patience, knowing that this led to your repentance? So we must be patient with others. In 2 Timothy 2, the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind, being able to teach Patient when wronged. This is part of our nature. You are going to be wronged. People are going to sin against you. You must be patient. Because God may grant them repentance. Think about that. Your patience with them as they sin against you will be an example of Christ's likeness for them. I mean, First Peter talks about that all the time. You love your enemies as they're persecuting you, and then you have to give an account of the hope that you have within you, and you do that with reverence and with honor telling them about Christ as they try to destroy your life, but that may lead to their repentance and that's why you are patient. And again, it's part of the fruits of the spirit in Galatians 5. The next one is a big one. Look at verse 13. He says, bearing with one another, bearing with one another. This is an implied imperative command here. This is something that we must do. Not that the others aren't. But here's a a command given to us. It's an ongoing endurance, an ongoing acceptance, an ongoing tolerance, an ongoing patience while suffering persecution and personal offense. This is what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 4. This is what we do, he says. Look, we're Christians. Here's what we do. He says, when we're reviled, we bless. You will be reviled, and what you do then is bless. And when we are persecuted, we endure. Paul's saying this is how we live our life." speaking of himself and the people with him, and that is how we live our life. When you're persecuted, you bless, or you endure, and when you're reviled, you bless. Ephesians 4, again, walk in a manner worthy of the calling, so you want to know what it looks like to walk according to the standard of God, according to the standard of what a Christian is. He says that you show tolerance for one another in love, and you're diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Bearing up with one another is, is part of what the Spirit of God does within the body of Christ to preserve unity and peace within the body. Again, expect each person in here to sin against you. Expect your brother to offend you and be prepared to bear with them out of love that, is, that preserves unity, it preserves peace, and it's what the Spirit is at work with, doing, I'm sorry. The Spirit is always preserving unity and peace within the church, and he does it through the bearing up of one another. This is what we do. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. Again, you do this in your family at home, you sin against each other all the time, and you have to preserve peace and unity at some point, or the family breaks up. And we do that with the family of Christ, but it's a much higher standard as children of God than with our own natural families. In Galatians 6, we bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. What's the law of Christ? He commanded us that we love one another the way he loved us. You want to know what that looks like? You bear with each other's burdens. I'm bringing burdens to this body. You get that? Here I am. (laughs) And you must bear with me. I'm going to sin. Not purposefully, not willingly. I don't have some, I'm like, I'm going to do this to this guy today and this to this guy today. I'm just a sinner. And you got to bear with me. And I expect that of you. And that's love. That's part of love. We must bear with one another. You bear with one another when you're sinned against. There is I want to take a tangent here, and I can't go long, but look at this there is a bearing that is bad. You understand that? There is a bearing in the Bible that is evil, and you don't do that. In fact, there's warnings about bearing with evil. You don't bear with evil. You bear with your brother and sister in Christ. You bear their sin against you. You bear when you're personally offended and things like that, but you don't bear with those who lead you away from purity and away from truth and away from the church and away from the faith. There are wolves out there. There are slanderers. There are false teachers. There are evil workers of deceit, disguised as as, uh, 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 preachers and, 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 and children of light that lead us astray. And he says in 2 Corinthians, do not bear with them. He says, they come with their craftiness. They try to lead you astray in your minds from simplicity and devotion to Christ. They come with a different spirit. They come with a different gospel. And, and he's telling the Corinthians, and you bear with them. Why are you bearing with them? The Corinthians are fighting in the church against each other. And then they're bearing with people that are trying to cause division and faction. He's like, what's wrong with you? You're bearing with the wrong people. He says, I cut off opportunities for them to be regarded as one of us. That's what Paul says. I'm cutting them off. I don't want anyone to think they're with us because they're striving to destroy us. And he says, uh, these are false apostles, deceitful workers. They disguise themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder even Satan comes as an angel of light. So don't be surprised when they disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will be according to their deeds. God knows what they're doing and their end will match their deeds. But he says, but you're being crazy. You're tolerating the foolish gladly. Tolerating is the word for bearing. You're bearing anyone that enslaves you. You're bearing with people that devour you. You're bearing with people that take advantage of you. You're bearing with people that exalt themselves and hit you in the face. Cut them off. You don't bear with those who are trying to destroy the body of Christ and destroy the church, the family of God. Titus 3 talks about that. You reject a factious man because why? Because he's perverted, because he is sinning and because he's already self-condemned. You don't bear with people that bring faction and dissension and division in the body of Christ or between brethren, but you bear with one another as you sin against one another. Finally, to become like Christ, we must forgive one another in the church. To be become like Christ, we must forgive one another. And again, it's implicit in that, that to forgive someone, they have to sin against you. So if you want to forgive like Christ forgave you, then you must have people sin against you like we sin against Christ. Forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. The word here is charizomai. I love that word because it just means, it's a grace gift. They've given you offense. You give them love. You give them grace. That's forgiving. When someone sinned against you, you give them grace. When Peter asked Jesus, how many times do I do this? Lord, right, in Matthew 18, how many times do I give someone grace? How many times do I forgive someone? Jesus says forever, 70 times seven. That's not 490 and you gotta count them. If you're counting how many times you forgave somebody, again, bigger problem. Uh, This is unending forgiveness. If anyone has a complaint against you, he says you forgive them. Now think about that. There are gonna be people that have complaints against you. There are gonna be people that complain about you. There are gonna be people that reprove you unknowing, like what they're talking about. there are going to be people that accuse you of something, blame you for something, say things about you that are untrue. You got to be okay with that. You don't go around defending yourself all the time, fighting for your reputation, making sure everyone knows I'm above reproach. Again, that's what the bad guys usually do. You take the offense and then love the person in return. Stop fighting for yourself. If you're going to fight for anything, fight for holiness and bear with one another and forgive one another when they complain against you. You gotta be okay with people not liking you. Do you understand that? I know that's hard. It's hard for any of us. But you just gotta get there. It's okay when people don't like you. You gotta be concerned about what Christ thinks about you. It's okay if they don't like you. And, and, and you, you wanna know the pathway to getting to the place where it's okay where people don't like you? You gotta have a lot of people that don't like you. <laughs> and you just gotta trust your father. I mean, think about this. There's, how many times have you talked to someone and you had this great conversation and you know, you're saying good things to them, you hug and then you walk out the door and you're like, those guys are weird, huh? You know? <laughs> They're doing the same thing after you left too. You, be okay with that. I'm not saying it's okay to talk bad about people. I'm just saying, you're probably doing it. Why do you expect no one to do that to you? You're probably making judgment calls all the time. Why do you get upset when people do that to you? First thing, work on your own mouth and your own heart. And always forgive your brother when they do that to you. It's just expected, okay? Love one another. Forgive one another. Again, there's a bunch of great verses. 1 Peter 2, Christ is the example. Luke 6, you don't want people to speak well of you all the time. That's always what they do to the bad guys. Ephesians 4, let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor. You know what clamor is? It's crying, it's whining, it's complaining. I'm the victim. People are always against me. Now listen, we, we can't do that as Christians, Jesus told you people are always going to be against you. (laughs) What do you expect? Jesus told you they're going to revile you and hate you and say wicked things about you. Duh. So stop whining about it. Expect it and love your brothers that do it. And then be an example of the gospel to people outside the church that are doing it to you. But stop getting offended and whining and complaining. The people always, no one sees how great you are and people always overlook you and you're such a good person. Nobody seems to notice. It's like, (laughs) no you're not (laughs) and we all notice but join the club there's no good person here not one of us and if there is get out this isn't for you christ saves sinners he saves those who have problems with their lips and he saves those who are sinners and we're fighting our sin we're fighting for righteousness we want our lips to be pure but be patient with one another as things come out and again there's the warning warning in matthew 6 and warning in matthew 18 if you forgive others their transgression, your heavenly father forgives you. But if you do not forgive others, your father will not forgive you. That is terrifying. That ought to bring chills in your new spine, right? That, that, and, and then in Matthew 18, same thing. My heavenly father will come to you in anger if you don't show forgiveness, if you don't forgive your brother from your heart. You want to guarantee the disciplining judgment of God in your life? Hold a grudge. You want to invite his discipline? You want to you you bring his disciplinary anger in your life as a child of God? Withhold mercy from your brother. Choose not to forgive someone and hold on to that bitterness and that resentment. Be cynical to the church. Hold in your heart this desire for fairness and repayment and vindication and vengeance. Pray in precatory prayers on your brothers and watch him. He will come for you. And if he doesn't, That's a terrifying place to be because that means that you're not his child. He disciplines his children. He won't let us stay in a place of withholding forgiveness because he won't lose us and he will come for us. Forgive your brother. So we must belong to Jesus Christ to grow in sanctification. We must become like Jesus Christ and finally, very quickly, We must love one another like Christ has loved us. Beyond all these things, he says in verse 14, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Beyond all of this, love. That's what he says. Everything we said, awesome, 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 but beyond all this, love. Love is the bond. It is the bond of unity, the perfect bond. It's the thing that unites. It's the thing that glues. It's the belt around Just like Christ is the binding force that unites the church, Colossians 2. Just like the spirit is the binding force that unites peace within the body of Christ in Ephesians 4. Just like bitterness is the binding force that unites you and glues you to evil, as Acts 8 says. Love is the binding force of perfection that binds us to sanctification, holiness, maturity, completeness, and Christ-likeness. There is no maturity. There is no completeness. There is no perfection. There is no sanctification. There is no Christ-likeness without love. It's the foundation. It's the glue that binds it all together. And it's the result of Christ-likeness. Love is the defining characteristic of the Christian. It is the evidence that the Spirit of God dwells within you. And again, the New Testament is replete with this. But some of the best verses are in John 13, where Jesus Christ says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. That is the proof. Do you know Christ? It will be proven by your love for one another, speaking most of the church, speaking specifically of the church. John 15, He says, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that one laid down his life for his friends. Again, speaking of the church, you did not choose me. I chose you and I appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. And this I command you that you love one another. And then 1 John 4. 1 John 4 is a wonderful chapter on love in the Bible. He says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You want to know that you are born again. You want to know that you're a Christian. You want to know that you have true salvation and you're secure in Jesus Christ. You will know it by your love, and your love will prove that you know God and that he knows you. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifest in us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we love God, he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the appeasement of his wrath for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we must love one another. Again, that's, that's, that's what tears down all of the excuses and the defense that we bring up but you don't understand he said this, but you don't don't know what I'm fighting through. You don't understand my family situation. You don't know the things that I've seen and things that I have to go through. Stop. If Christ became a man to die for your sins and to take on all of the wrath that we deserve and to pay for all of that, not because we deserve, because he loved us, there is no defense, no justification ever for withholding love to another brother in Christ. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. If he says, I love God, but I'm, I'm upset with this person over here and I'm, I'm angry at them, that is a liar. Now, nah, there's repentance. But you can't be angry at your brother who you've seen and love God who you have not seen. And this is the commandment we have for him, from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So, this is our new selves resolution. This is what we're fighting for this year. We must resolve to love one another in the way that Jesus Christ has loved us. And that is a fight. We must fight together for this. This is a never-ending battle. This is something we will always do. And the purpose of, of, of doing this is to please and to glorify him. We must imitate our father and walk in love as Jesus Christ loved us and lay down our life for one another. So beginning today and ending when you die, which I don't know when that's gonna be, maybe tomorrow, Maybe 50 years, I don't know. But beginning today and ending when we die, all of us who belong to Jesus Christ must resolve to become like Jesus Christ and to love like Jesus Christ. We must practice compassion towards one another, kindness towards one another, humility, gentleness, patience towards one another. And to do any of those things requires us to sin against one another. So uh, get your mind ready to expect it and then resolve to love We must bear with one another, forgive one another, and lay down our lives for one another in love. This is the new nature, or our new nature of existence, and this is the evidence that we're born from above and have the spirit of Christ dwelling within us. This is our everlasting ambition, to love our brethren and to love the church of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, everyone in here who belongs to Jesus, this is our family, and we are going to sin against one another. There are going to be occasions purposed by our Father to produce Christ-likeness in us. And that's why it happens. So we must submit to his will, submit to his word, and resolve to be compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patient, bearing with one another, loving one another. We must resolve to forgive one another. This is his will for us for 2021 and, and for the remainder of our life. And remember, if we withhold his love, required of us towards our brothers and sisters in christ then he will come for us in his anger individually and collectively if this defines us as a church whatever we need so that we will always be united with him let us love one another let's pray father thank you so much for your word thank you for this time together thank you god for always giving to us exactly what we need Father, all of these things, many of us could say, I've heard that before, but we need to hear it again. Lord, your mercy, your compassion, your gentleness and patience, your love for us, the humility of Christ that he laid down his life for us, the forgiveness that you give to us daily and forever. Father, all of these things should be enough for us to always love one another. But Lord, we also need your word daily because every day we have to fight against the old self, the, the things that we once knew, uh, the, the things that the world tells us that are okay, that we have to fight against evil in our lives, fight against evil in our minds, fight against evil in this world, Lord. And I pray, Father, that we would stand firm on your truth, that you would, that you would uh, help us to be firm in our love for one another, to never stop bearing, to never stop forgiving. And Lord, please take us home soon. We pray Christ would come soon, that he would reign on this earth soon, that there would be no more fight, there would be no more sin, there would be no more evil. But until that day, give us the strength to fight. We pray this in your heavenly name, amen.